2 Kings chapter 16. If you were with us last week or you watched last week, King Ahaz saw, he approached, and he offered. And he yielded to the temptation to have a fancy altar. And we dove deeply into verse 12. And we learned from that verse and some other Bible passages just how sin unfolds. And if we know how sin unfolds, then we ought to be able to know when it is unfolding and how to avoid it. That's why we take the time to look at words in the Bible and truth. We slow down a little bit and camp out because if we just buzz by it like a hummingbird, then we don't really get to understand the depths of it. And the priest in King Ahaz's day was named Uriah. It's spelled Urijah, but we'll say Uriah. And he was Ahaz's partner in this awful sin. He should have been the one rebuking Ahaz and saying, Oh, no, king, we're not going to build an altar. We already have one, and it's the one that God commanded. It's the pattern that God gave Moses in the mount. And what Ahaz and Uriah essentially told God is, what you have provided for us is not enough. We want a more beautiful and a more exquisite, a more, as people would say, an up-to-date altar. Now let me address something here that I hope will strengthen your faith. And it takes us back to Genesis chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, if you're taking notes. Genesis 13, verses 8 through 13. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. So Abram, who was Lot's uncle, was going to the place that God would have him go, and he was very well off. He had lots of cattle and sheep and oxen, all of that. And so did Lot. And yet there was a bunch of arguing and bickering between the herdmen. And Abram continued saying, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And listen to this. And think about King Ahaz here. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. Remember, we learned that when Ahaz saw the altar, it means he beheld it. He considered it. He regarded that altar in Damascus. And when Lot lifted up his eyes and looked at the plain of Jordan, he beheld it. He regarded it. He considered it. He said, beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. 
Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now let's spend a moment analyzing this situation and then relating it to our text, to King Ahaz, to Uriah the priest. There was a quarrel between Abram's herdman and Lot's herdman. And this quarrel came about because they had so much stuff, so many animals, that the land was not able to bear them, at least in the opinion of Lot. And rather than rejoicing that God had profited them so abundantly, there was division in the ranks. And sensing Lot wanted to go his own way, Abram let Lot choose. He said, you choose. Because to Abram, it didn't matter which geographical portion of land Lot chose. Abram wasn't going to choose that way. Abram and Lot both saw the plains of Jordan, didn't they? They were standing there together. But Abram didn't regard the plains of Jordan. He didn't say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lot. I'm the uncle here. I'm the elder. That is a beautiful plain out there. It is well watered. I think I'll take that for myself. Or I'll take this side and you take that side. Abram said no such thing. He said, Lot, you choose. You can have what you want. And what Lot should have chosen to do is to whip his servants into shape and say, let me tell you guys something. You're not in charge here. There's not any arguing. Abram is the boss. I'm his nephew. And whatever he says is what's going to happen. And we're going to stay with this man because God is leading him somewhere and I want to be with him where God leads him. But he didn't do that. He didn't tell him, hey, knock off the infighting. Lot should have chosen to stay with Abram and to possess what Abram possessed. Now, he was called Abram in those days. His name would later be changed to Abraham. That's why I'm saying Abram, because that's what the Bible says. Lot, if you read the Bible and you know about Lot, it said Lot, his, he was just. His just Lot was vexed with a filthy conversation of those in Sodom. So he was a just man, meaning he was a Christian. He looked forward to the same Messiah coming as Abram did. But Lot was a shallow Christian. I know many Lots. They're usually very nice people. But their understanding of God's word and their application of God's word is limited and they like it that way. There's the difference right there. They aren't new Christians. It's not because they're new Christians. Even though as a new Christian, I guess you could say we're shallow in our understanding, but we don't want to stay there. If you're hungry, you don't want to stay shallow. You want to go deeper into God's word and, and learn. And we do that at different rates. But they're people who are content 
to be saved and then leave the meatier portions of Scripture to the preacher like it's his job to understand it for them so they don't have to understand it. Well, that's only part of it. When God gifts a man to teach, he gifts him in the understanding of the word and in the communication of it to others. Why? So we can put on a show? So we can get a round of applause or have people say amen or collect a salary? None of that. It's so they can understand. And so then they can teach others to understand. That's the whole purpose of teaching. The illustration is that we have an empty basket. I have nothing to teach. And Jesus fills it with the fish and the loaves. And then I take what he put in there and I hand it out to you. And then if you're, you're a father, you do that to your children. Your mother, you teach your children. And that's how that goes. But a shallow Christian says, Oh, I'm good. I had my fill. I ate my fish and my loaves, and I don't really want to pass anything out. I don't really want to get into all that. That's for the preacher to learn. But that's what a shallow Christian is. I want to use Brother Doug as a good example. Not of a shallow Christian, by the way. He's not. Brother Doug was a new Christian about 10 years ago. Right about the time we came here. And I guarantee you he was not a shallow Christian. He was so hungry to learn God's Word. And I know it's embarrassing for me to talk about him like this, but I'm, I'm telling you, he was hungry to learn God's Word, and he's just as hungry now as he was then. And I promise you, he knows more about God's Word than he did 10 years ago. Now, a shallow Christian would say, Oh, I'm just glad to be saved. I, I really don't want to get into all the reading the Bible, and it's, it's just too confusing. How do you know? Have you ever tried to study it? And that's what we're doing in here is to try to help you. And Doug wants to be a part of God's work. He doesn't want to be among those who strive and can't get along. And do you know why churches have more trouble than anything else? And I'm not talking about over the color of the carpet or the walls or this or that. We have more trouble because of shallow Christians. Because that's what these herdmen were. Whether they were Christians or not, I don't know. But they, they bickered and fought over carnal things. And when you have people who are steeped in God's doctrine, they love God's Word, they want to want to go deeper and deeper and understand, then they understand it's a whole lot more important for us to love one another and encourage one another like Jesus did than to bicker and fight like Abraham and Lot's herdmen did. Now in the Genesis Thank you, Doug, for letting me use you as a, as a good example there. In the Genesis 13 text that I read you, Lot did not choose to stay with Abram. He chose to lift up his eyes. He chose the same way Ahaz did, with his eyes. And the plains of Jordan near Sodom were beautiful, no doubt about that. They were well watered, and that was appealing to the eyes. It would be for me. I love seeing uh, what happens in the spring, about the time summer's rolling around and everything's already bloomed. And after a few good rains, it's, it's green and, oh, it's wonderful. I, I like that too. But I want you to see what God did after Lot chose his own way by lifting up his eyes. 
It's in that same chapter in Genesis 13, but you move down to verses 14 through 15. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Now there's a big difference in what Lot did and what Abram did. Lot lifted up his eyes and he beheld what looked good to him. God said, lift up your eyes. And he didn't say, if you see something really pretty out there, I'll give you that. If you see a place where you could grow some good crops or maybe there's a, some fruit trees or uh, good fishing in this creek over here. He said, look north, east, south, west. Now, where is that? That's all around him, isn't it? That's all yours. Every bit of it's yours because I'm going to give it to you. Did you see that? If Lot had stayed with Abraham, he wouldn't have been limited to living on the well-watered plains of Jordan near Sodom. He could have had it all, like God promised Abram. Abram was not a shallow Christian. He was a profound, truth-seeking Christian, one who left all he knew, if you know his story, he left all he knew, his family, his friends, everyone, based solely on God's promise to show him where he should go. He didn't know where he was going, but he did know, hey, God's leading me there. And to Abram, wherever God led him and whatever land God gave him, was beautiful. It was well watered by the word of God. And it was lovely, even though it may have been a barren wilderness, because God led him there, and God was with him. And its end would be glorious and not destructive, because we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah while Lot was there, don't we? God pronounced judgment upon those cities and all who were in them. And when Lot, the shallow Christian, now here's what happened. You can go back and read the story yourself when you have time. Lot tried to suddenly witness to his family about the coming judgment of God on that city. And do you know what the Bible says? He seemed as one who mocked. In other words... If I could put myself in that house, I might have heard them in their language say, ha, Dad, when are you so interested in the Bible? We've never heard you talk about the judgment of God. Are you mocking right now? Are you serious? And of course, his sons-in-law stayed behind. And Lot and his wife and two daughters walked away. God told them, don't look back. Well, his wife looked back, so she became a pillar of sodium chloride. Salt. And then the two daughters went with him, and he committed incest with them. And from that, those two illicit unions came two of Israel's greatest enemies, the Ammonites and the Moabites. 
And how beautiful and how lovely would it have been for Lot to just stay where God led him with his loving and faithful uncle Abram. But Lot lifted up his eyes and he followed what he desired. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. And you know this is a Bible truth for Old Testament and New Testament saints. Just because it's written in the New Testament doesn't mean it was only a New Testament truth. All of God's truth is relevant throughout the Bible. Old and New Testament, they're one. One God, one author, though he used men to write those precious words for us. You know, a shallow Christian often walks by sight. And he or she will never be all they could have been in the service of the Lord if they continue in that way. You know what the good news is? If you say, well, Brother Andy, you stepped on my feet. I am a shallow Christian. You, you nailed it. One, two, three, everything you said is true. You don't have to stay that way. You don't. You can start right now and say, by God's grace, I don't want to be a shallow Christian anymore. I may never figure it all out. I may never have it all memorized, but I want to know more when I walk out of this church today than I did when I got here. And that's really our goal, for you to know more about the Bible than you did when you got here, even if it's just one thing you remember. You know, when my baby girl Sarah, the 24-year-old now, when she was little, I would have her, and I did this with mothers, before she went to bed, I'd have her read a passage in the Bible. And so... She was reading uh, Galatians, and I believe it was chapter th- 3. And so she came. She was a little thing, and I said, well, tell me something you learned. And she said, can I just tell you one thing? <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> so that was what she would do. She would tell me one thing she learned, and that's, that was good enough for me. If she knew one more thing than she did before she opened that passage up. And so you shouldn't limit yourself to just learning one thing. But if that's what you remember, you know more than you did when you got here. How about that? That's a good principle, not just for Bible study, but for piano, Miss Francis. Isn't that right? If you're, if you're, you're still students, we're, uh, remember just a few more things next lesson than what they learned. You, you're proud of them because they practiced what you taught them. Now, taking what we've learned about Lot, let's apply it to Ahaz the king. What should have been beautiful to Ahaz was that bloody, brazen altar that stood on the eastern side of the tabernacle, or in this case, the temple. That should have been beautiful for him. That was the first piece of furniture that you, that you encountered if you walk into the eastern gate. There it is, the brazen altar, the brass altar where those blood sacrifices were made and where that fire was never to go out. And the morning and the evening sacrifices were made. It was a bloody altar. It was not a beautiful altar in the eyes of man. You ever seen burn blood? I hope you haven't, but I have. And it's not beautiful. Brass that gets burned, it's not beautiful, not to the eye. But that 
bloody brazen altar should have reminded Ahaz that there was only one way his sins could be put away, and that was through the shedding of blood. And although the Bible tells us the blood of bulls and goats, the ones shed at that brazen altar, can't ever take away sins, the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would take away the sins of the world. And to Ahaz, the sacrifices made at this bloody brazen altar should have been a beautiful picture in his mind of that once and for all sacrifice that Christ would make when he comes one day. That Messiah who had been promised since the Garden of Eden to mankind and about whom the people had been reminded through the ordinances and the sacrifices and the types and the lessons and the prophecies given in the Old Testament. But to Ahaz, the altar of Damascus was more beautiful, even though it could not save, even though it did not picture salvation through the blood of an innocent substitute. Now look with me in verse 13, back in our text, 2 Kings 16, and we are in verse 13, speaking of Ahaz, and he burnt his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. Now, if you just took that verse right there and didn't consider any of the verses before it or after it, you might think, oh, we're reading about one of the children of Israel bringing these various offerings to the brazen altar. Well, that's not the altar that he used. And you'll see that the brazen altar and the altar are two different altars in this passage. The altar is the altar of Damascus, the altar to Ahaz. It said, and he burnt his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. What did we learn in the last verse about putting an offering on the altar where it said that Ahaz offered thereon? We learn that once it's put on the altar, the intention of the one offering it is to burn it. Not just to lay it up there and leave it there. And that's what happened when offerings were placed upon the brazen altar. They were burned. They weren't left to just sit there and rot or to look pretty. Now that's one of the differences between the the offering that Abel brought to God and the one Cain brought. The one Cain brought was a blood offering. There wasn't anything pretty about that. But whatever Cain brought, Abel brought the blood offering, but Cain brought the offering of the fruit of his own labor, of the ground. And that was the wrong kind, even though it may have been a beautiful presentation of whatever it was that he brought. And using the pattern that we learned about the word saw and the word approached and the word offered, let's look at the word burnt, which in the King James translation is simply the past tense of the word burn. Now we would say burned, or you could say burnt, either one is correct. We learned that putting an offering on the altar meant that it was going to be burned. And here the word burnt 
means to ascend or to go up. So when an offering is burnt, or when anything is burnt, where does the smoke go? It goes up, doesn't it? Unless you put a fan on it or some sort of suction. But the natural place the smoke, the smoke goes is up. Now listen to Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9. Leviticus 1 verse 9, speaking of an animal that would be sacrificed. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So when the offering was burnt, then the smoke went up. And when the smoke went up, the Lord smelled it. That's the image that you get here. And if this offering was made as God said to make it, then that smoke from that offering that was burning would be a sweet savor unto the Lord. He'd be pleased with it. He'd say, that's the way I told you to do it, and I'm pleased with it. Now, what about an offering like the one Ahaz made? When the offering, when the smoke of his offering went up, was it a sweet savor to the Lord? I mean, after all, he had an altar. He put an animal on it. He put meat offering, which is meal. He poured out a drink offering. He had peace offerings. And that smoke went up. Shouldn't that have been pleasing to the Lord? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 27. Deuteronomy 12, 27, God gives the commandment through Moses concerning these burnt offerings. He said, And thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, listen to this, upon the altar of the Lord thy God. And the blood of thy sacrifices shall be poured out upon the altar of the Lord thy God. Are you hearing that? The altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt eat the flesh. Where did those offerings have to be offered? On the altar of Damascus? No, upon the altar of the Lord thy God. There was one altar. And God accepted sacrifices on that altar and only sacrifices that were done his way. Not the maim and the halt and the lame and the mangy and all of that. Not those cast off animals who had imperfections, but animals that were without blemish. Just like Jesus was without spot or blemish. And with respect to the altar of Damascus, after all this that Ahaz did, it must have been a sight. God wouldn't say, well, Ahaz, you've used the wrong altar, but that's okay because it is beautiful. I mean, after all, you tried. You tried your best. No, God would condemn that act of blasphemy. Because it was a rejection of the way he commanded. And how long is this world and its religions going to try to continue to shove their man-made altars and doctrines toward God and ask him to bless them? They're still doing it. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 through 13. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 through 13 says... Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. 
To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And listen to this. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. That's useless offerings. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Friend, not every offering was pleasing to the Lord. In fact, the offerings Isaiah wrote about were displeasing to the Lord. He said so. And yet the people, just like King Ahaz, offered their vain offerings, their useless offerings, supposing that they would please God. Now you who have been with us for some time, and maybe you've learned this truth elsewhere, but we know you have here, have learned that Jesus' blood offering was the last one that was accepted by God. And Jesus' offering of himself by shedding his own blood was the only offering that could take away sin. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, let me just remind you, for those of you who are new here or those of you who are online, I'm not going to stop and give everybody time to get to these verses. And the reason is we get there at different speeds. So if you'll just write them down in your notes and then listen to me read them, and then you at least have the Scripture, and you can go back and read it for yourself at another time. That way you don't miss anything. I mean, that's just a suggestion for you. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, which I quoted earlier, Hebrews 10 verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Listen, if the blood of bulls and goats that were offered correctly by the Old Testament priests could not take away sins... How foolish was it of Ahaz to think that the blood of his unholy sacrifice on an unholy altar could take away sins? When you take this stuff apart, you see just how foolish he was, don't you? And people who are like him. The New Testament altar is the cross, cross of Calvary, where Jesus was the offering. And if your altar is anything other than the cross... And if you're depending on the offering of yourself or anything other than Jesus, then you are not and will not be accepted by God. God's way is narrow. It is singular. It is exclusive. And it makes no room for any other altar or any other sacrifice than the one he ordained. That's why we spend so much time learning about that Old Testament altar. You may say, boy, we really get bogged down in the details. Well, we do get in the details, but it's not bogging us down. It is helping our journey forward. 
Now, if you have learned in detail, like we've taught here, and perhaps other Bible teachers are doing the same thing, I sure hope so. If you have learned in detail about those Old Testament sacrifices and ordinances, especially the animal sacrifices, then I want you to think about trying to witness someone, witness to someone about Jesus dying on the cross without them understanding the Old Testament sacrifices. So you walk up to somebody and you tell them, hey, Jesus shed his blood for your sins. And they think, oh, okay, well, what am I to make of that if I don't know anything about shedding of blood for sins? I've got to be taught, and that's why we start in Genesis. And when we get to that point, we stop and take the time to teach you about the blood sacrifice and what it means, what it meant then, and what it points to. And then, at the end of your Genesis to Jesus, or creation to Christ class, or similar uh, systematic teaching, when you see Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, you can say, I know what that means. He's the Lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of all those lambs and goats that were sacrificed. The morning and evening sacrifices, all of that. He's the fulfillment of it. Now I understand that. And I'm afraid so many don't. Now you don't have to have a perfect understanding of the Old Testament to be saved. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It was that same Jesus who was buried and rose again for your justification. If you're believing in a Savior who died and never rose again, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. <laughs> it's some other, some other person. And while I'm here, I want to remind you to be very careful about listening to or reading sermons by preachers who are trying to split hairs when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. If your faith is in what Jesus has done for you, for your sin, don't let those charlatans tell you that you also have to do this or believe this or say this. You know, the Lordship salvation is one that a lot of people have struggled with, and I'll not try to go into all of it. Jesus Christ is our Lord when we are saved. We don't have to say, okay, I believe on Jesus and what he did for me, and I also am going to make him Lord of my life. You don't make him anything. You accept what he did for you. And so that hair splitting, I mean, do you know any Christian, somebody who is a Christian, who would tell you, yes, I'm a Christian, but <laughs> Jesus is not my Lord? No. It's self-evident. And these preachers, so-called, try to get you to believe that there's a difference between faith and belief on Jesus. Well, if my faith is in Jesus, well, if I believe on Jesus but I don't have faith, you can't. You ha if your faith is in Jesus, your belief is on Jesus. Well, what about the difference between trust and faith? How about the difference between belief and trust? It's madness. And I get righteously angry with those wolves who are bullying you and others in this way. When I hear or read something about that someone says or writes about a biblical doctrine, say on the internet, I am able by God's grace and through the study of his word to either say amen to truth or to say no way to the lies. Say, ha. 
I ain't buying that. I don't care how many likes it got. I'm not buying it because the Bible doesn't declare it. And if you have trouble doing that, which most people do, then quit watching these other preachers. Just stop it. Stop reading their posts. Why would you want to read after people? Why would you want to search and subscribe to their Facebook pages when they confuse you? You don't need confusion. You need clarity. The knowimsaved.com ministry came about in response to the confusion that the world's religions, specifically so-called fundamental independent Baptists, have caused. Now, a true fundamental independent Baptist wouldn't cause any of these problems, but there are some who have called themselves by that, who have offered more in the way of confusion and less in the way of clarity and truth to people, and they're messed up. That's the best way I can say it. When they come to the website and they contact our pastor, and sometimes I deal with them if uh, he's super busy or with other people who have problems, by the way, or if they're Spanish speakers. But their problems all can be boiled down to pretty much one or two things, the chief of those being the person is looking at what they've done rather than what Jesus has done. That's what it all really boils down to. And they, these so-called fundamental independent Baptist preachers, or, or, or any other denomination for that matter, have led people away from the finished work of Christ. Now, they may not think they're doing it, or they may not mean to do it. They may be very sincere. They may be fine, upstanding citizens and good friends to you and so forth. But when they lead people away from the finished work of Christ, then they're leading them toward the filthy works of apostasy. So why then would you ever go back to those who teach that you have to be saved by some sort of work and be drawn away from the simplicity that's in Christ? Just stop doing it. Hey, if you say, boy, well, Brother Andy, I just want to listen to all I can about Jesus, then hit hit replay on ours. Go back and pull up one of Brother Fulton's messages and listen to it again. Sister Alice put something on Facebook here a while back. She said, I rewatched your Sunday school lesson. Well, you know what that means? She already seen it one time. She rewatched it. And I'm thankful for that, that God led her to do that. So if that's what you're having trouble doing, if you say, well, I just want to fill my ears with the Word of God, then go back and start with Brother Fulton's Genesis to Jesus class and listen to it again. Rewatch it. It'll help you. Because I promise you, you don't remember every single thing that you were taught. I don't. That's why I have to keep studying. Now let's start into verse 14 here. 2 Kings 16, we're down in verse 14. Still speaking of King Ahaz, and he brought also the brazen altar. Now you see a moment ago I said that when he mentioned the altar in verse 13, that's not the brazen altar because they're referred to two different ways. You have the altar, which is the altar of Damascus, and you have the brazen altar, which is the one God commanded to be made. But look at what it says, and he brought, what's that next word, Brother Doug? Also. Also. 
the brazen altar which was before the Lord. There are all kinds of things wrong with this. First of all, King Ahaz had no business bringing God's altar anywhere. He wasn't qualified to touch it. And the world would say, why, he's the king. Why, he should, not in God's eyes, he is the king of a nation. He is not the high priest. He is not a Levite. He has no uh, right to touch that altar, much less to move it anywhere. Where'd God want it? He said, that's going to be the first piece of furniture, and it's going to be over here, uh, on, in, which is the eastern side of the tabernacle. And after that, you're going to have the laver and then the entrance into the tabernacle and then, or the holy place. And then you're going to have the table of showbread over here and the candlestick here and the altar of incense. Then the most holy place with the ark and the mercy seat. I mean, that's how that goes. And you learn that in the Bible. And if it's switched up any other way, it's not right. Numbers chapter 1, verses 50 through 51 Numbers chapter 1, verses 50 through 51. And if you ever miss any of these verses, just come see me after church. I wrote them down for me, and I'll let you uh, write them down for yourself. But thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony and over all the vessels thereof. And over all things that belong to it, they shall bear the tabernacle. And all the vessels thereof, and they shall minister unto it, and shall encamp around the tab about the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Who moved the altar? The Levites. They picked it up. They moved it. They set it back down. And they moved it only when God moved Israel in her journey. And once the temple was built in Solomon's day, that tabernacle was non-portable, wouldn't you say? That was, a, that was a stationary building at that time. And there was no reason for the altar to be moved anywhere. And Ahaz risked his life, and he risked the life of any person, including a Levite, who were involved in the unauthorized relocation of that altar. Next week we'll look at the second problem with that word also. The second problem that it shows us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the people who are hungry to hear your word, to watch us online, to come in here uh, when we know the world would find other things for them to do during the week and during the Lord's Day. And Lord, we pray that you would bless them with the understanding of what's been taught, that you would burn off the dross if there's anything that was misunderstood or incorrect, and that the simplicity of your word would be so appealing to them that they wouldn't desire it from anybody else, that they wouldn't desire to hear some preacher or teacher, no matter how eloquent he is or she is, but Lord, just to take the old words in this text, in this book, and to make them their very own, and to live by them. And we pray this in Jesus' name.